John 12, 27 through 30, this is the word of Almighty God. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Pray with me, friends. Lord, I plead with you now. Open to us your word. Grant to us the presence of your spirit. Teach us. Help us to respond in right worship. Change our lives for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. The hour has come. That's what Jesus said last week. Looming on the horizon for the Savior is something so terrible that none of us has ever imagined it's like. Jesus knows that in less than one week, he'll suffer the most Horrific torture the men of his day could ever devise. Beyond the physical suffering, Jesus would experience the sorrow of being rejected by people who should love and celebrate him. He would experience the betrayal of a dear friend, the abandonment of his nearest supporters. And worse than all this is the horror of having God the Father count him as guilty of every single sin God would ever forgive and justly punish him for things that would earn any one of us an eternity in hell a billion times over. In front of Jesus, in just a few days, stands the cross. How do you get ready for something hard? Sometimes in our lives, a dark season is on the horizon. We see it coming. Sometimes painful circumstances are headed our ways, and there's nothing we can do about it. How do we keep going? As we continue to walk with Jesus toward the cross, we watch as he looks toward the hardship to come. How can he handle it? How can he stand it? And what can we learn from it? Today, as we continue the walk through the gospel according to John, we're going to find four points that you can write down that'll help us as we watch Jesus look toward the cross. So, point number one for today. Be comforted by Christ's true humanity. Be comforted by Christ's true humanity. Just look at the beginning of 27. Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. Last week we saw when a group of Greeks came asking to see Jesus the week of the Passover, this somehow signaled to Jesus that his hour had come. 
Sometime very soon, Jesus would lay down his life for the sins of all God would ever forgive. The Savior knows what's coming. He is God in the flesh, after all. He knows how hard this is going to be. And Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. The word for troubled here, it's a really strong word. It has to do with something being shaken. Jesus is trembling in his very soul over what he's facing. The word for troubled occurs other places in the New Testament. Those might help us understand its meaning. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water, you guys remember this? They're in the boat. They see Jesus walking. And they, like people watching a Scooby-Doo episode, think he's a ghost. Bible says they were troubled. That also translates it terrified. Makes sense, right? When King Herod heard about the newborn King Jesus, he was troubled, deeply upset. Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled as they get word that he will depart and leave them. When Zechariah the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, sees the angel Gabriel. He was troubled. He was trembling with fear. So troubled, here in John 12, you've got to understand it is a strong emotion. Every bit of the context here indicates that troubled means shaken. Honestly, afraid is probably a fair word. But, Let's be careful applying the concept of such emotion to the Savior. There is, of course, a kind of fear that is sinful. There is a fear that does not trust in God. We cannot begin to suggest that Jesus had that kind of fear. The Son of God is and always is without sin. He, therefore, did not ever experience anything that mirrors sinful fear. Yet it's important that we do not downplay what Jesus says to us when he says that he is troubled in his soul. He's trembling in his soul. Something in front of the Savior is enough to cause him to quake. Call it fear if you're able to understand fear in a non-sinful way. Call it troubled if that's the only way you can think about it. But understand That the Savior is here hit with a powerful emotion that shakes him to his holy core. If you read John, you guys know that John in his writing of the gospel sometimes tells us things that aren't present in the other gospels. And he leaves out things that the other gospels tell us. He does that because, hey, those were already written. I don't need to do that. But sometimes John gives us scenes that communicate the same truth from different accounts. So John doesn't show you Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here, we're watching Jesus wrestle through the same troubling of soul, the same emotional hardship that you read in the Garden accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. Listen to Matthew 26 37 and 38, it reads, Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, this is on Thursday night, 
He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So in the garden, Matthew says Jesus was troubled and sorrowful, even to death. Now be careful, that troubled in Matthew is not the same troubled as the troubled is in John. It's a word that means distressed, not the word that means shaken. But Matthew is telling us from the prayer of Jesus that the Savior is feeling such a crushing weight on his soul that it feels like if it would ever get any worse, he would die. That is a powerfully heavy emotion that the Savior's working through. And I will again say to you, he does it without sin. Now, doctrinally, how do we deal with that moment? How do you deal with that emotion from the Savior? And it helps if you will remember that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. He possesses a dual nature of deity and humanity. I want to read to you for the second time this morning, apparently, from our modern language version of the Second London Confession of 1689. I'm going to read chapter 8, paragraph 2. And in case you wonder, this echoes the Chalcedonian Creed of 451. So this is not new, and this surely is not unique to us. It says, quote, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. That's important. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Now pay attention to this last part. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Now, is that not enough to make your brain just shut down? You put that much data in, you get the blue screen that comes up if you're a Windows user. You know what I'm talking about. Now, what I'm about to start talking about is dangerous if we overdo it. I am playing with fire. So be nice to me, okay? We don't want to delve too deeply into the mystery of the Holy Trinity or into the depths of the dual nature the hypostatic union of Christ, the God-man. Jesus is truly God. You got that, right? Jesus is truly man. If you try to divide those things too sharply, you get a false picture of Jesus as two different natures, two different beings that are sort of squished together at the same time. That's an old heresy that has been corrected in church history. 
To think that one nature is real and the other nature is not real is an old heresy in church history. Don't ever depict Jesus as a man who looks a little like God or as God who's pretending to be a man. That's not true. Those are heresies corrected in church history. And our minds can barely wrap around this. We've got to recognize that Jesus is actually, actually God, truly God, and truly man. He's God who lived an absolutely perfect, genuine human life. But here's me playing with fire now. You can understand that certain activities of the Son of God are clearly, the, are, they're clearly unique to either the divine or the human nature of Jesus. For example, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days, and the Bible said that he was what? Hungry. Some of you have fasted for about three hours, and you're hungry now. But the Bible said Jesus was hungry. Is it difficult for you to understand, for us to grasp, that it's the human nature of Jesus that was hungry, not the divine nature? The God side wasn't hungry. There you go. We're, we're, we're together. When Jesus exercises supernatural knowledge, knowing the thoughts of the religious teachers, that's likely the divine nature at work, right? When Jesus said, I do not know the day or the hour of my future return, that's the human nature speaking, because the divine nature would have access to total knowledge. Now, the fact that Jesus took upon himself true human nature, this is, where, this is where we're going down this weird road, this allowed Jesus to experience the hardships that you and I face. That includes emotion. Have you ever noticed emotion can be a hardship, by the way? I've noticed that some of your emotions, your emotions can be hardships, I can tell you that. <laughs> In his divine nature, Jesus is not subject to being emotionally moved the way that we are. You understand that, right? You can't, you can't tweak God's emotions by your behavior. Why? Because God is unchanging. God has total knowledge of everything to come, past, present, and future. He's eternally set emotionally toward everything, but he's not changed by changing events. That'll make your brain hurt too. But because Jesus took on a truly human nature, Jesus could, in fact, understand the suffering he was soon to face. And he could feel the emotion proper to that knowledge. Yet because he is Jesus, our perfect Savior, he could face this genuine soul troubling without sin. Okay, theology lesson done for a moment. No matter how you parse out the language regarding emotion, fear, the suffering of Jesus here, you should be encouraged by the faithfulness of Jesus in his humanity. The author of Hebrews emphasized for us Jesus' humanity and made that a way to call on Christians to draw near to the Lord with greater confidence. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, he writes, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. While the deity of Jesus, the God aspect of Jesus' nature was not shaken in his humanity, the Savior can say, just as many of us might say, now is my soul troubled. The very real human soul of the Savior trembled at the thought of what was to come. Now you consider your life. What hurts? Do you have any hurts? What, what feels like a burden too great to bear? Do you have any burdens? What feels like a threat on the horizon full of sorrow and pain? Take comfort. Your Savior understands. Your Savior has been troubled when facing the awfulness of the crucifixion. Your Savior has stared death and the wrath of God in the face and felt the weight of that hardship in his heart. And thanks be to God. Your Savior faced it down. He stayed strong. He never sinned, and he did the work he came to do. Your Savior accomplished his mission, and he invites you to come to him for strength, comfort, and grace. When you face the ugliness of this life, be comforted by the fact of of Jesus' genuine humanity. He can relate to you. He knows what it feels like. He cares. Now, don't here assume I'm giving you a license to sinfully fear. And do not you dare say, oh, he's letting me worry now. Worries is sin. If your fear involves you not trusting God, your fear is something you need to turn over to the Lord in repentance. If your fear is dread of the unknown, oh, I don't know how it's going to go. That's not honoring the Lord. If your fear is a mask for how much you don't like the nation's politics, battle it. Confess to God that you've taken your eyes off of Him. But if your fear is the troubling of your soul as you walk through a hard road, know that the Savior who loves you, who died for you, who beat fear and death, that Savior knows you, He knows what you're going through and he is eager to comfort you. Now, let's go forward and let's watch Jesus look to his mission to find strength to carry on. Point number two, rest in the covenant of redemption. Rest in the covenant of redemption. Verse 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
The question, if it is a question here, is rhetorical. Jesus knows the answer. But what a kindness from God that you and I are allowed to watch the Savior work it through. Should he pray that his Father save him from what is to come? Should he ask God, don't let me go to the cross after all? He could. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus rebuking Peter for trying to whip out a sword and take down a cohort. Jesus said, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Pete, I don't need the sword. I got this. Jesus could have ended this suffering at any time. He could call on his father to stop it and it would be stopped. But no, getting out of this situation is not the thing that is best. It is for the purpose of laying down his life that Jesus came into the world. Listen to how Jesus closed his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few days after this. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus felt the true weight of what was to come. And if there was any other possible way he could accomplish the plan of redemption, he would eagerly have gone that direction. But Jesus knew that the ultimate will of God must be done. While his human nature trembled, the Savior remained totally, perfectly submitted to the will of his Father and their united plan of redemption. So back in October last year, we spent three weeks what many, studying what many people call the covenant of redemption. Does anybody remember the Latin word for the covenant of redemption? Come on, nerds in the back. The Pactum Salutis. Got it? You guys remember now? You're going to tell me you remember even if you don't, don't you, you bunch of liars? Okay. (laughs) Now, the Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption, is never explicitly mentioned with its name in Scripture, but a study of the Bible shows us the existence of this covenant. Before the dawn of time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the one true God, entered into agreement within the Trinity. And this agreement is the foundation for everything God accomplishes through creation. In the covenant of redemption, God the Father elects a people out of humanity to be saved and he sends the Son to be their Redeemer, promising the Son the reward of these people. God the Son willingly chooses to be sent by His Father to accomplish the redemption of the elect through His death, burial, and resurrection and to receive as His reward these people He would save. God the Holy Spirit agrees that He will apply the redemption of Jesus, the redemption of the Son, to the elect 
He will live within the elect as they continue through their earthly lives and he will keep the elect until they're glorified in Christ with new, perfected, eternal bodies. Now, does that sound familiar to you guys? I'm so glad. Jesus accomplished the plan of redemption. Jesus would not let anything, not even the hardest emotion, stand in his way. If you know Jesus, you should find great comfort and great joy in the fact that Jesus, regardless of the hardship, would move heaven and earth to accomplish God's perfect plan. So if you belong to Jesus, you can know that nothing in the entire world could ever take you away from Jesus. Now, bless you. Let's watch what Jesus says next. He's going to teach us something else. Just really cool. Point number three, focus on the glory of God. Focus on the glory of God. Look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. How would Jesus deal with the looming promise of the cross? The Savior prayed, Father, glorify your name. In the moment when Jesus knew that the purpose for his incarnation, his earthly ministry had arrived, in the moment, When the Savior faced the darkest event of all human history, in the moment when he knew that suffering was coming for him, Jesus prayed that God his Father would glorify his name. And then a voice comes from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You guys know that only three times in the life and ministry of Jesus do we hear the audible voice of God the Father? For example, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we hear the voice of God speak at his baptism and at his transfiguration. Here in John's gospel, the voice of God booms right here as the Son of God prays for the name of God to be glorified. And the Father says, look, I have already been glorified in the perfect life of my Son, and I will continue to be glorified as my Son perfectly completes His mission in His death, burial, and resurrection. As Jesus prays, the glory of God is going to be accomplished. And now again, we learn from the Savior. In His true humanity, Jesus knew what it was like to face hardship harder than any hardship you and I have ever faced. And how did he press on facing the hardship, walking toward the hardship, knowing the hardship was what had to happen? How he did it was he focused on the glory of God. He focused on the joy, even in a time of sorrow, of giving glory to God because glorifying God is the highest joy in the entire universe. How do I know that Jesus here praying for the glory of God, was looking forward to joy. Hebrews 12, 1 to 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How did Jesus endure? How did Jesus walk to the cross? He managed the feet for the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew that the glory of God is a higher, greater joy than avoiding hardship and suffering. Jesus believed the promise of his heavenly father that glory and life and resurrection would be on the other side of the excruciating horror of Calvary. And we, Christian friends, we hear the call of the word of God. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. He walked to the cross with eyes locked on the glory of God. And it gave him the courage to continue on. As you walk through your life, as you walk through a life that will contain joys and will sometimes contain deep sorrow, we'll only be able to press on if we, like Jesus, focus on the glory of God. Now, In churches like ours, I think you would agree, the topic of the glory of God is a pretty popular topic, right? You hear about the glory of God often? What is the chief end of man? Well, look at you guys. But what is glory? What does it mean to glorify God? What is this purpose that gave Jesus the courage to endure the cross? What is this purpose that helps us resist sin even to the point of shedding our own blood? So funny, we use the word glory all the time, but defining it is actually harder than you think. Some words are easy to define. Some are hard to define. For example, we know what a square is, right? It is a four-sided figure with four equal sides and four right angles, right? What if it's a four-sided speaker with four equal sides, but they're not four right angles? What is it then? Rhombus, you nerds. Okay, good. (laughs) We know what a chair is. How do you know what a chair is? You're sitting on it. But try to define something like beauty, majesty. You start falling short of concrete words, right? John Piper ties the word glory to the holiness of God and reads Isaiah 6, verse 3. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So let's start with holy. We know holy means set apart, right? The holiness of God is the absolute perfection and the transcendence of God. It's what sets God apart from every other thing. That God is creator and not creation. That God is perfect, not flawed. That God is eternal, not finite. That God is without stain of corruption. All of those tie together to show us that God is holy. God is set apart. God is greater than, different than anything else you might ever see. The angels in Isaiah 6, they praise God. They call God holy, 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 holier, holiest of all. 
But then they say when they magnify the holiness of God that the whole earth is full of his glory. So what they're telling us is that the whole earth is full of evidences of, of manifestations of the perfections and the holiness of God. The beauty of the sky, the vastness of space, the intricacy of a cell. All of these tell us things about the mind and might of our holy God. The way that that math that you and I can't understand always works speaks to the majesty and the consistency and the perfection of God. God's glory is whatever tells us of the greatness and worth and perfection and holiness of God. Piper says, quote, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. But beyond what Piper says, you see glory illustrated in Scripture with God's presence in bright, brilliant light, right? God's glory is is what makes God stand out. The word for glory also brings to mind the concept of weightiness, heaviness, gravity. God's importance, his significance, his centrality, it's all inside the concept of his glory. If you think of God's glory as the importance of God, the value and weightiness of God, and the infinite beauty of God's perfections, you're starting to get the concept of glory figured out. Then you move to the verb and think about glorifying God. Now, obviously, there's nothing you or I can do to add to the glory of God, right? God's glory is not at 1,000 and you can bring it up to 1,001. That's not how we work. I can't make God weightier. I can't make God more brilliant or more beautiful. I can't make God more holy. No, God is infinite in his perfections. How then do I glorify God? How do you? We glorify God when we think feel, and function in ways that demonstrate the glory of God. We never add to God's glory, but we can, by God's grace, acknowledge it, believe it, rejoice in it, and demonstrate it to others. Now, the lesson here is that when we glorify God, That glory gives us the joy that we need to walk through anything. God created us. God instilled in us his purpose, his highest purpose. There's no greater purpose for humanity than that we glorify the Lord our God and enjoy him forever. And the good news includes the fact that when we do what God made us to do, he fills us with the joy that we can only have when doing what we were created to do. You and I are created to demonstrate the holiness, the perfection, the weightiness, the worthiness, the magnificence, the glory of God. Seeking that glory of God enabled Jesus to steadfastly march toward the cross. Understand, seeking the glory of God can empower you to overcome fear and hurt, to overcome sorrow and loss, 
to overcome sin and temptation and to walk faithfully with your God into eternal joy. So focus on the glory of God. Now, point number four. It'll be a quicker one. Point number four. Believe in Jesus. You see if you think it fits. 29 to 30. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. After the voice of God speaks, many people around Jesus respond differently. Right? The crowd hears the sound, but apparently some of them aren't discerning the words. Maybe all of them. Who knows? So the crowd comes up with a variety of opinions as to what just happened. Some people said the sound was an angel speaking to Jesus. The Jews of the first century had a strong fascination with angelic things. Especially since God had stopped sending them prophets after Malachi around 425 B.C. Other people said that the sound was thunder. They're so far removed from a willingness to believe what God was up to that they try to explain the voice of God away as a natural phenomenon. By the way, can you imagine someone so crazy as to try to explain the voice of God or the actions of God away as pure natural phenomena? That is our world, isn't it? Jesus won't even enter into discussion with these guys about the identity of the voice. He tells the crowd that the voice that sounded was for their benefit, not his. This is not saying that the Savior wasn't encouraged by the comforting voice of his heavenly Father, but Jesus did not need an external audible voice, right? The Father could easily have comforted Jesus without making it audible to the crowd. In those other times that God spoke audibly in the Gospels, the voice was always to help other people around Jesus believe in Jesus and listen to him. The Father identified Jesus with his voice at Jesus' baptism. The Father expressed his pleasure in his Son and told people to listen to him at his transfiguration. Those times, Jesus' disciples, John the Baptist, they were the beneficiaries. But here, it's the watching crowd. They're supposed to take note. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you to take note of what's going on. Because there are three outcomes here based on the crowd's reaction. One group says, ooh, that was an angel. You guys know spiritual people that see angels everywhere? They they really seem to think that Jesus has got something to do with God, but they don't grasp the real picture of his glory as actually God in the flesh, favored by and glorifying the heavenly Father. You know, some of the people you know, maybe it's even you. Some of the people you know think of Jesus as a spiritually good guy, but not God. Hear me? Thinking that spiritual things are happening, but not yielding your very self to Jesus as Lord is not enough. Also in the crowd are the folks who just flat refused to believe. The voice of God rang out. They said it thundered. Be very, very careful 
with a naturalistic mind that can only attempt to interpret the world through a flat, humanistic, non-supernatural, scientific lens. Can I tell you something? We do not live in a non-supernatural world. There's a God who made us. We just ended the non-supernatural world. There are angels. There are demons. There is an eternity to come. There is life after this one. Do not interpret God as thunder or some easily explainable thing. That leads to your destruction. But what's the third option? If you don't think of Jesus as somebody spiritual but not God, you don't think of everything as just explainable phenomena, what is the third option? Is the purpose of this gospel? Believe in Jesus. Believe. Believe that he is the son of God who came to this earth. Believe that he lived the only perfect life to ever be lived as a human being. Believe that he died to pay the price for the sins of other people. Believe that he rose from the grave and that he's alive today. Believe and cry out to Jesus to forgive your sin and save your soul. And when you believe in Jesus, you can find comfort in him to make it through the hardships of this life because you look forward to eternity with him. Be grateful to God that Jesus took on himself genuine, true humanity. Thank him for being a savior who knows what it's like to suffer hardships. Thank him that he went through the very temptations we faced yet without sin. Be comforted by his humanity. Be grateful for his accomplished mission. Find joy in the fact that Jesus not only was assigned the work, but finished the task he was sent to accomplish. And find courage as Jesus found courage. By focusing every aspect of your life on the profound glory of God. In seeking to glorify God, you'll find the joy and the courage to carry on. Let's pray together. Lord God, we indeed acknowledge Jesus. God the Son. God in the flesh. Holy One, truly worthy. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, truly man, experienced the pains and the hardships that we face. Friends, as you pray right now, as you talk to God, Ask God to help you to be comforted by the fact that Jesus went through more than what you've gone through. But he can understand and he can identify. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking on human frailties. As you continue in prayer, 
thank Jesus for finishing the mission. He and his heavenly father agreed before there was time itself to accomplish the mission. If he didn't accomplish it, we're dead. So you, talking to God right now on your own, thank him. Jesus accomplished his mission, even with sorrow and pain, by focusing on the glory of God. Lord God, we come to you and we acknowledge you are holy, great, glorious, magnificent. And God, we acknowledge that your word has told us that our joy is found in your glory. Help us, God, to focus everything on who you are, your great glory, and help us to yield our lives to glorifying you for the joy that's before us. And friends, at the end of the day, focus on faith. Believe in Jesus. If you're somebody fighting with God because you don't want to see Jesus as anything more than one spiritual option among many, let go of that. If you're fighting against God and saying, I'll only believe what I can prove, stop being so silly because your brain is not big enough to prove massive things that are beyond you. Believe. Trust Jesus. Trust his word. Be saved. God, I pray for those who genuinely need to come to faith. Help them to do it. Help them to believe and be saved. Be magnified, God. Do great things in your church. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.